turn with me your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth in the Old Testament follows the book of Judges. You know, one of the, one of the great blessings in my life are hot, out-of-the-oven chocolate chip cookies made by my wife. There are several things that, that I'll give up and for various reasons, if I just feel like I'm eating unhealthy or I want to eat healthy or whatever it is, chocolate chip cookies from her are not one of them. I'll pass on desserts, I'll pass on a lot of things, but I, I've even remarked to her, I say, you know, if, if I ever got word from a doctor, one of you, my docs are in here, right? And if one of you ever said, you know, it's not looking good, you're going to have to stop eating sweets, I would say that's fine except for Steph's cookies. I'm going to eat them. So that's just how it's going to be. I love her chocolate chip cookies. Now, have you ever, in the midst of cooking, taken a big old spoonful of shortening and tried that? Or maybe baking powder or baking soda? Not so good, right? Most of the men in here have no idea what those things are, right? But ladies, you know that Neither of those ingredients are very good, and we don't sit down, and I've never sat down at the table, and Steph said, hey, I have prepared you the most excellent, incredible serving of shortening I want you to eat. We don't like those. They're not, they're not really good by themselves, but we don't judge my wife's chocolate chip cookies based on one ingredient. We don't, we don't judge them on shortening or baking soda. We judge them on the final result, the final product. That's what we judge them on, and they are delicious. Just like baking soda is an unsavory ingredient, there are moments in life which are quite unsavory. There are moments in life that we do not enjoy, we do not like. And if we just focus on that one moment, then life is very bitter. But when we take a step back and we see those moments mixed in with all of God's good and perfect plan, we come to see that his plan is indeed good when it's finished and complete. See, the problem, though, we run into is that we tend to dwell on those moments. We tend to be a people who focus in on the bitter ingredients of life. We can very be easily be those who, who really magnify the situations of life in such a way that we tumble into a ditch of despair, a, a ditch of hopelessness. And that's where we found Ruth and Naomi, really Naomi in Ruth chapter 1, is we found her in a, in a place of, of despair, a place of hopelessness. But we're reminded, as we're going to look this morning at Ruth 2, we're reminded that there is hope in the midst of, of hopelessness. There is hope, and we see that in Ruth 2. See, the, the biblical perspective is that our lives are the process of baking while eternity is the final product. So we don't focus on the individual incidences or circumstances or situations of life. We look ahead to eternity. We look ahead to what awaits. We look ahead to glory. We look ahead, for sake of our illustration this morning, to the cookies, right? It's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18, he says, he's talking about their struggles and their suffering. And it's why he doesn't just dwell on the circumstance. He doesn't just dwell on the suffering, the situations. But he says, for this light momentary affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, they're passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul looks ahead. He doesn't focus just on one, that one bitter ingredient of life. But he looks ahead on the finished product, on glory that awaits for all who are children of God Most High. And so when we come to Ruth 2 this morning, we find a story of God's providence that gives us hope for today. You, you might remember a couple weeks ago when we started in Ruth, we started with a, a story of suffering in Ruth 1. We talked about how, how all of that was so relevant to the life of our church and what's been going on. And last week we celebrated the, the resurrection and, and just rejoiced in the fact that we serve a living God. And his resurrection was not an accident. It was not something that was a backup plan for the Lord, but it was something that he had planned for all eternity according to Acts 2.23. And so we rejoice in that. We rejoice in God providentially carrying out his plan. And we come this morning, we look back in Ruth 2, and we see a picture, a glimpse of of God's providence, a a story of providence. Now, before we get into Ruth 2, I want to clarify what that word is because a lot of you probably don't walk around and refer to providence. It's not a word that you may use that often. So what do we mean when we say providence? What are we referring to? I think an easy way to remember God's providence is simply by explaining it as God's care for and continuous working in his creation to carry out and accomplish his purposes. So it's it's God's care for and continuous working in his creation to carry out and accomplish his purposes. A way to, to understand that on, on just things that we identify with and under, understand it would be like someone who has a great amount of wealth that says, you know, I want to buy this thousand acres and I, I'm going to buy this thousand acres and I'm going to use this thousand acres for farming and for raising my family and for all sorts of things. And, and so he finds the perfect plot and he, he builds his house and he gets a plan and he, and he builds this house and he's meticulously caring for that and watching the structure go up. He even assists and brings people in to, to, to build different portions of it. When the house is built, he dwells in the house and he is there in the house caring for it, using it as it's supposed to be used. The kids use the land as it's supposed to be used. There may be times where they don't. There's times where they do things or there's times where a cow busts down a fence. And what does he do? He goes, he cares for the fence. He works the land exactly as he intends to carry out his purpose, his plan for the land that he rules over, you might say. In in comparison to a builder who comes in and, and puts up the house and leaves. You see, God's providence is like the first man who owns all the land, who sees that the land is used for the purpose that he designs and, and he plans for, that, that watches over the home and the building of the home and cares for it and carries it out. When problems arise, he deals with the problems. That's in comparison to what we would see as one who just puts something together and leaves. That is not God. God's providence is like the first man The second man would have no illustration of God in Scripture. One who just builds and steps away. That is not what God has done. God 
providentially cares for and works in his creation. The, the word providence is derived from a Latin word, pro videre, pro beforehand, vide is talking about vision, that God in his perfect knowledge sees beforehand what should and needs to happen to accomplish his perfect plan. But when we think of God's providence, it's not just God seeing what needs to happen, it's God seeing to what needs to happen. It's not just him going, oh, that, that needs to happen, but it's him carrying it out and working it according to his, his prerogative, his plans, his purpose. Where do we see providence in Scripture? Well, if you, if you, if you take a step back, from all of Scripture, you see it from Genesis to Revelation. You see it through the meta narrative, the big story, the big picture, the overall overarching narrative of Scripture. You see it from cover to cover. You see God providentially working through His people to accomplish His plan in His creation. We we hear John, John Flavel once said that that God's providence is like reading Hebrew. It's best to read it backwards to see what God has done, and then you observe and see all that he did to get to where he has accomplished his plan. In, in Scripture, if we just start at the beginning, we see examples like Joseph in Genesis 37 to 50, where God is providentially working out his plan and caring for his people, making provisions for his people. The great statement that Joseph makes in Genesis 50, 20, that we just sang, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Man had their plans, God carried out his plan in the midst. In Job 34, 14 to 15, we read, if he, talking about God, if God should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. That man is dependent upon God. That God, if he were to remove his presence, to remove himself, then man would cease to exist and return to dust. In Proverbs 16.33, we read, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. God guides. God is working. God is in the midst. In Isaiah 46.8-11, we read, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. We just meditated on that. He says, a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I've spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Why is God able to say that? Because God is sovereign. He's providentially working out his plans and his purposes to accomplish what he set forth to accomplish. There's certainty there. We can bank on that. Daniel 4, 35. Nebuchadnezzar describes God. He says that he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because God is almighty. God is sovereign. God is, God is providential working. What he does, he does according to his will. None can stop him from doing what he plans to do. In Matthew 10, 28 to 31, we read this. Do, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them? will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. 
What does God's providence look like? It looks like he is so intimately aware and involved in your life that the numbers of your hair, or, or, or I'm sorry, that your hair is numbered. He knows who you are. He knows you intimately. He cares for the sparrows. He certainly cares for his people. In Acts 8, 1 and 1, 8, if you just jot those two down, you can flip the numbers, right? In Acts 8, 1, or in 1, 8, what do we read? Do you remember Acts 1, 8? It says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. Well, how does, how does that come about? How is that accomplished? Well, in Acts 8, 1, we learn that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. What brought this about? It, it was after Stephen had died. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Right? There's Jerusalem. And what happens? They were scattered all throughout the regions of, you guessed it, Judea and Samaria. God is accomplishing and working to bring about his plan. In Ephesians 1, 11 and 12, we read, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The grand end of God's providential work is what? The glory of his name. The exaltation, the praise of his great name. And how does he do that? Well, he does that because he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. In Colossians 1.17, we even read that in him, in Christ, all things hold together. This is the picture of a mighty omniscient, omnipotent God who's holding all things together, all things together. This stands in contrast to two popular notions that are in our day. They've always been around. The first one is chance, right? God's providence stands in contrast to chance. That, well, things just happen. Luck wins out. Man, that was really lucky. Listen, God's providence means that if we understand that he is a providential God, it means that we understand that things don't just happen. There are meaning, there's purpose behind life's events. God God is not some cosmic deity up there with a set of dice, rolling them, seeing what's going to happen. That's not what he's doing. He doesn't roll the dice and hope for the best. He sees beforehand what is best and acts to accomplish it according to his gracious plan. He's providentially working. So God's providence stands in contrast to chance. It also stands in contrast to fated determinism. Fate, the idea that whatever is must be. This robotic confinement of everything in life has to happen the way it has to happen. Because it's just fated to happen that way. That God's providence doesn't teach fated determinism. When we look at God's providence, we look at the testimony of Scripture, we see man making free moral choices. We see him making choices to do right and wrong, but we see that those choices do not thwart God's plan. God still carries out his plan. It doesn't violate our ability to make those moral choices, but it does not thwart God's good purpose and God's good plan. He still works because he is sovereign. He is mighty. His providence teaches that he uses everything to bring about his plan and that nothing thwarts it. That's God's providence. So we have hope in the midst of hopelessness. We have hope today. We come today to Ruth 2 because we do not worship a weak God whose plans are dependent on the roll of a dice or or are confined to the laws of fate. No, we serve an omnipotent, 
all-wise God who is absolutely able to accomplish all that he plans to do. And there is great hope in that. Ruth is an example of this. Ruth is an example of God's providence in real life through normal, everyday happenings. One thing I want you to do is we continue to work through Ruth, and we're going to read chapter 2 in, in just a moment. I want you to take note that there's, there's not this just incredible, astounding miracle that springs forth in the book of Ruth. It's simply God working through everyday occurrences, God working through life. And we'll see that, that it's God working through the quote-unquote normal to accomplish his extraordinary plan. That's what we see in Ruth 2. Two weeks ago, we looked at Ruth 1, and we talked about it being a story of suffering. And just by way of reminder, if you flip, you can look at Ruth 1 real quick. We're not going to read it, but just to remind you, uh, Ruth that happens in the days of the judges. It's a, a good comparison. The book of Judges, when the, where there's rampant wickedness in Ruth, we see examples of great kindness and integrity. We see a good example as opposed to many, many bad examples in the book of Judges. But it was in the, the time of the Judges, and we exp- see right away there's a famine that sends Elimelech and Naomi to the land of Moab. God uses famines often in his plan to accomplish his purposes. Famines certainly aren't fun. They're not something we want to go through, but God uses them. We see that it was a famine that God used to send the people to Egypt. Do you remember this? Right? We don't have time to get into all the details, but, but it was a famine that allowed Joseph to bring his brothers and the people of Israel into Egypt that God had prophesied and, and foretold would happen long ago. And it was God using a famine to accomplish his purpose. Well, here we see in Ruth 1, a, a famine drives Elimelech and Naomi to Moab where their sons marry two Moabites. We talked about two weeks ago, we learned in, in Ruth 1 that Ultimately, Elimelech and both of their sons die, leaving Naomi with no provider, leaving her bitter in despair. And so she returns to Bethlehem. But why does she return to Bethlehem? Because she just decides to? No, because God ended the famine. And God provides for his people. And she hears of this, so she goes back to Bethlehem. And um, Orpah stays, but Ruth goes with her. In verse 22 of chapter 1, we read an important statement. It says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, this is, this is an important note, because this is the best time they possibly could have returned. They were in need. They were, as you would describe, poor and needy. They need food. They come back, and in that time when the barley harvest was going on, the edges of the field were left ungleaned. And so those who were poor in need could go and get food from the edges of the field, what remained from the harvest. And so Naomi and Ruth go into this situation at the perfect time. Now let's read what happens in Ruth chapter 2. The word of the Lord says this, says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. 
And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Then she rose to glean or when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had, been wor- she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with, this, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. I, I want us just to look at a few points in Ruth 2 this morning. We, we talked about first Ruth 1, the story of suffering. Today is a story of providence. The next time we look at Ruth, we'll look at Ruth 3 and touch on 1 and 2 as well. But Ruth 3, we'll look at a story of redemption that we see in Ruth. And then we'll end our time in Ruth looking at a story within his story. 
But today as we look at the fact that, that this is a story of providence, we just sang the, the hymn from William Cowper, God moves in a mysterious way, and we, we come across that verse that says, His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding ever, every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The, the flower is budding in Ruth 2. Ruth 1 was indeed bitter. It was hard. It was full of suffering. It was grief-stricken. But the flower of God's providence begins to bloom in Ruth 2, and we're going to see that it is incredibly, incredibly sweet with God's grace. Now, in verse 1, look at verse 1. We read, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. If you, you're just reading what you need to take note of, this is a narrator's note. This is the narrator, the, the author of Ruth, making the statement. And what he's doing is he's giving us multiple perspectives as he tells the story. He, he's making a statement to help us have a better understanding of what's going on. This, this is something we're quite familiar with, with movies. You may watch and there's a narrator who, who makes a statement and then you see what's going on. Or even times where there's a split screen and you, you see what's going on here, but then you see what's going on over here as well. And, and what you understand is that the characters over here don't really know the knowledge that you have from the narrator or what's been revealed here. We're very accustomed to that. We understand that in storytelling. It's kind of a, an insider's view, so to speak. And that's what the narrator is doing. He's giving us a, a heads up, an insider view of a divine perspective and a human perspective. So verse 1, he's saying, listen, you need to know, I want you to know as we hear the story, as we see what unfolds, here's what you need to know. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And so then we start reading, and when we get to verse 2, the, the characters don't know what's going on. They don't know that at this time. That is something we know as readers, and so we're just reading along with that knowledge. We have a little bit different perspective given to us by the author of Ruth. And then in verse 3, we come to a really important, really interesting statement. We read, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to who to Boaz now our ears when we read that we're kind of like hey Boaz I know who that guy is Ruth just happens to walk into the field now the, the word here is used it's used frequently in the Old Testament but the form is used only here and, and scholars look and they say the Hebrew and they, they look at what it, what it says and they just take note that it is kinda, it's, a, it's really a hyperbole. It's, a, it's an exaggerated statement that's not really meant to be taken literally. It, it would be the equivalent of us reading as we read through and me giving the air quotes, right? So she set out and went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Or as we read, it, maybe they italicize or bold or underline it. Right, that when they uh, wrote in this time, they didn't have italics. They didn't click on it and highlight it and bold it and underline it for emphasis. They have to use English or well, not English, Hebrew devices to show emphasis. That's what the author is doing here. He's showing emphasis. We read when you you read through and you just jot these down and look later. But in chapter one, verses six, verse eight, verse nine, verse thirteen, verse twenty-one, all of these verses, we see God working through circumstances. We see God's action. We see God's plan. We see his work among the people. 
And so when we come to 2 verse 3, we don't read and go, wow, was she ha- oh, wow that's lucky. Oh, what, what a great chance that is. No, we read that and go, oh, yeah, right, she happened to. Oh, no, we know who Boaz is. There's no happening, chance happening here. This is God carrying out his plan and putting her where she needs to be. In verse 7, we see that it's Ruth's diligent work. In verse 11 and 12, her noble character that catches Boaz's eye. Remember we said Ruth is kind of a a little bit of a contrast to the book of Judges? We see that here in verses 7, verses 11 and 12. And then we get down to verse 20. We see a beautiful moment when Ruth says, The man's name in whom I work today, his field, is Boaz. And Naomi's like, What? Boaz? Do you know who Boaz is? Let me tell you who Boaz is. Like Naomi knew of him, but she didn't know where his field was. She didn't know Ruth had gone to work there. Ruth had just went and happened to go into the field. And so she says, hey, listen, I worked in Boaz's field. In verse 20, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, talking about the Lord's kindness, has not forsaken the living or the dead. It's the same thing. Rebecca says the same thing, Isaac and Rebecca, in Genesis 24, 27. She praises the Lord for his kindness, for not forsaking, not forgetting. And here Naomi does the same thing. She exalts God. She praises God for remembering, for showing his kindness, his steadfast love, his favor. Because Boaz was not just another man in town. He was what is known as their kinsman redeemer. That's what we're going to look at as we go into chapter 3, a story of redemption. So we're not going to spend a lot of time there today. But he was not just another guy. This is an intentional carrying out of God's plan and his purpose as he has brought Ruth into the field of Boaz. And so what we see in verse 20 is we see the first note of joy. In this book, we see the first time that Naomi just rejoices. She was bitter. Remember, she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. It means bitter. I don't want to be known as delightful. I want to be known as bitter because God has come out against me. But now all of a sudden, we see this glimmer of hope. We see a glimmer of light as God's providentially carrying out his plan. God is working. God is working. And Naomi rejoices that God has not removed his kindness from them. There's five gleanings I just want to point out to you when we think about God's providence from Ruth. And and we're going to look at the whole book. This is going to just keep coming out. As we look at chapter 3 and we see chapter 4, we're going to just see God's providential plan continues to unfold. That flower is beginning to bloom in chapter 2, and it's going to magnificently bloom in chapter 3 and chapter 4 and be beautiful when we get to the very last verse of chapter 4 and we look back and go, wow, God is awesome. And so as we get ready to move into 3 and 4, I want to give you five gleanings on God's providence from Ruth. Here's the first one. There's always another perspective. There's always another perspective. It's it's God's perspective. There's always another perspective. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, we learn an important principle where we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's always another perspective. 
You see, we want things done just so from our perspective of what should be right. The commentator Matthew Henry, I, I came across this this week and just, it just made me kind of chuckle and went, yeah, you're right. He said, God did not consult us in making the world, yet it is well made. Why should we expect then that he should take measures from us in governing it? Matthew Henry says, listen, God didn't ask your opinion on how things should be created. Why do we think he's going to ask our opinion on how it should be run? It's a pretty good observation. We've got to trust God's ways and remember that we don't have his perspective. We don't have the big picture. There's always another perspective, and we have to remain aware of that perspective. The second gleaning that we should take away from Ruth and the story of God's providence is that God's hand is always at work in, around, and through our circumstances. God's hand is always at work in, around, and through our circumstances. Basically, here's another way to say that. It's one way to believe, or to quote, I should say. It's one, way, it's one thing to quote Romans 8, 28, that God works all things for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purposes. It's one thing to quote that. It's another thing to believe it. Do you just know it, or do you truly believe that God is always working in, around, and through our circumstances? Because if you truly believe it, that means that you say, okay, that includes me losing my job. That includes my current health diagnosis. That includes camps, mission trips, mission conference getting canceled. That even includes us in the predicament we're in, sitting every other row. It includes the tragedy I just walked through. It includes the celebration of that great accomplishment. It includes the pay raise or the job I just landed. It includes all things. God is always at work in our circumstances. The third gleaning is that we must not allow current situations to drive us to despair when we know that God grants hope in the midst of hopelessness. We can't allow our current circumstances, current situations to drive us to despair. Why? Because we know that God gives hope in the midst of hopelessness. It's where we started. Reading from Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 where he talks about this light momentary affliction. Why does he call it? Is it because it was easy to get beaten? Was it because it was easy and he enjoyed being thrown in prison? No. It was because he knew that God is working and that there is hope in the midst of hopelessness. So when he's bound in prison, he knows God is working. And he trusts God even when he can't see and he can't understand and he can't discern. He trusts God to be working. Isaiah 50.10 says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Maybe you're in a point of darkness today. Trust in the Lord and rely on God. Trust in the Lord. The fourth gleaning I think we need to learn to ask better questions. When difficulty comes, I think we need to learn to ask better questions. We often ask, why is this happening? How 
Can I make it? How am I going to move, go on? Th- those are both questions of despair. And as I shared with you in the past, I, I would love to be able to answer why. I don't know. Typically, the why question is one we don't know in the midst of difficulty and trials. How are we going to move on? I don't know, but we are. I think some better questions is, or, or questions like, where is God? Where is he? Oh, God's the same place today as he was a year ago. He's the same place he was 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago. He's the same exact place he was when Christ hung on the cross. God is high and exalted. He is reigning. Where is God? Where is God in this? What is he doing? There's another better question. What is God doing? Or what about this one? What is God teaching me? All of those are better questions. Why? Those questions remind us that there is hope in the midst of hopelessness. The first questions are questions of despair, and they're very natural. I, I wouldn't, I, I've asked those questions. Why is this happening? How can I make it? I've asked those questions. I've asked those questions very recently. God, why is this happening? Why? But I'm not going to stay there. Instead, I'm going to say, God, where are you at in this moment? God, what are you doing? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach Grace Baptist Church? What are you trying to teach your church in the United States? What are you trying to teach your church globally? That there's hope in the midst of hopelessness. That hope is in the sovereign, almighty God. That hope's not in a vaccine. That hope is not in a government. It's not in a party. Hope's not in money. It's not in our health. That hope is in Christ. So quit depending on all those things. Depend on Christ. The fifth gleaning. Remember that God is not against you, believer. Remember that God is not against you. Remember that statement that Naomi makes twice in Ruth 1, that he is acting against me, he is against me. That, that's not what we read in Romans 8, 28, that God is working for your good, right? It doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. It doesn't matter. It mean that it's always going to be fun, but he's not against his people. Again, we come back to John Flavel. He says this. this is a little lengthier quote, but I want you to hear it as rich in meaning and wisdom. He says, Providence is nothing else but the performance of God's gracious purpose and promises to his people. Under many of our straits and troubles, we say, all these things are against us. But indeed, providence neither does nor can do anything that is really against the true interest and good of the saints. For what are the works of providence but the execution of God's decree and the fulfilling of his word? Now there is nothing but good to the saints in, his good, in God's good purposes and promises. And therefore, whatever providence does in their concerns, it must be, as the text speaks, the performance of all things for them. Flavel is just reminded of the testimony of Scripture. He's reminded of, of declarations like Joseph in Genesis 50:20. He's reminded of the writing of Paul in Romans 8:28, that God is not against the saints. He is not against the believers. He is for us. If you love God or are calling, called according to his purpose, you know that God is for you. He's for you. There's hope in the midst of hopelessness. Again, that doesn't mean it's fun, it doesn't mean it's easy doesn't mean it's the way we want it to be but it certainly doesn't mean that God's against you and he's opposed to you God is working through the diff- most difficult of situations and circumstances 
I mean, I'm just going to throw in an extra one here. I think I told you five. Let's add a sixth one. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but a sixth leaning is that we need to trust God's character. We need to trust and remember who God is. So we think about God's providence. We need to trust and remember that God is good, sovereign, and wise. If God is not good, sovereign, and wise, his providence is absolutely terrifying. But he is good, he is sovereign, and he is wise. Here's the final word today. The final word is that there is hope because God is working. There's hope today. I don't know what your situation is, but there's hope because God's working. In Ruth, we saw a famine that led to death, to sorrow, to bitterness, and now this, this, this intense time of difficulty is turned to providential corner as we see God beginning to work and, and use these circumstances. Bitter grief is, is turning into hopeful joy. The bitter bud is blooming into a beautiful flower. If we, if we skip ahead and we look a little ahead because we can cheat and do this, the, the characters in Ruth couldn't do this, but we can. Ruth 4.17, it kind of affords us a new set of glasses in which we can observe and look back on the reading. We read, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. We see God's plan unfolding and blooming in a beautiful way. And we can even look further. We even have a better perspective. We can go, oh, wait, he's the father of David? Wait a minute. David was the Davidic line, and that's the line, the lineage of Christ the King who came. And we can look back and go, wow, God's plan is beautiful. What a beautiful flower has bloomed in God's plan. John Piper says this in his book on Ruth. He says, the point of this book is not just that God is preparing the way for the coming king or coming of the king of glory, but that he is doing it in such a way that all of us should learn that the worst of times are not wasted. They're not wasted globally, historically, or personally. There is hope in the midst of hopelessness because God is not a God who wastes stuff. He's not a God who leaves things up to chance. He's not a God that's rolling the dice. No, hope is real because God is working, and you need to know that today. Are you tired of the pandemic? Certainly so, but you need to know that hope is real because God is working. Are you convinced that your child hears absolutely nothing you say and you're talking to a brick wall? Well, press on, persevere. You have hope because God is working. Are you tired and worn out because you think that you and your spouse are making absolutely zero relational progress, that you keep butting heads, you keep fighting, and it's like, what is it worth? Well, have hope because God is working. Are you tired of asking God for the same thing over and over? You come to your prayer time and you you seem to be praying the same thing and you start to go, is it any worth? Do I keep on? I've been asking for this. Well, yeah, press on. Keep on. Why? Because there's hope, because God is working. You need to know that there is hope in the midst of hopelessness because this is a story of God's providence, and it is one story out of hundreds of stories in Scripture, a part of one great story of God's providence. He is working, and there is hope in that. Your circumstance does not have the final word. God will accomplish his plans. He is not against his people. He is working in and through the lives of his people. So this day, no matter how difficult the day it is, it is a day filled with hope in Christ. There may be suffering, there may be grief, there may be conflict, there may be trials, there may be despair. But in the despair, we turn and we look forward to God and we trust him and his providence. And we have hope because God is working. And we know that with confidence today, believers. Some of you in here don't know that, though, because you're not a believer. 
You're not a follower of Christ. You can't claim the beautiful promise of Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Some of you sit here and, and despair is very real. Hopelessness is very real. It's because of what Mike prayed earlier. No, he, he is our only hope. He's our only hope. Every other hope is temporary, it's fleeting. Is it, is it there for a little while? Yeah, but it will be gone. But hope in Christ is hope that endures because God is working. There is hope unending in Christ. And so some of you are here today and you're an unbeliever. You're watching on, on Facebook or YouTube. You're not a follower of Christ. And you need to understand that, that some of these circumstances, God is working in the midst of circumstances to open your eyes to say, hey, I know you're really hard-headed. I created you. I know what you've been through. I know the sin that you're in the midst of. I know what you've done. You need Christ. You need to repent and trust him. And I'm going to keep putting these circumstances in front of you until you realize that you are weak and you are unable to save yourself and that all those things that you're hoping in, you're hoping in your education, and you're hoping in your job, and you're hoping in your athleticism, and you're hoping in your marriage, and you're hoping in your kids, and you're hoping in whatever, fill the blank. All of those are going to leave. They're all going to be gone. They're all going to leave you in a point of despair. It's all going to fail. You're going to be disappointed. You need to realize that. And God's going to keep on putting that in front of you to make you realize that hope is only found in Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would call you to, to repent and turn to Christ in faith. Turn from your sins and trust Jesus Christ as Lord. Confess with your mouth that he is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved and you will be saved unto a living hope by the resurrection of Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and never fading. That is the hope that is in Christ, the hope that we have in the midst of hopelessness, the hope that we have because God is always working. Let's pray. Oh God, we...